really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, reviews, great interviews, and so much more, all about the fabulous world of rugby. I'm your host, David Lawrence. I am an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it, all over the globe. If you'd like to get in touch, well, I would love to hear from you. I'm on Twitter at of Scrum. I'm on Instagram at the Scrum of the Earth podcast. And you can always just drop me an email at the Scrum of the Earth at gmail.com. So, as always, there was a ton of rugby this weekend. There is a lot for us to talk about. So let's get right to it. So as always, we start with current updates and there's really not much to report here this week. And on top of that, the thoughts of the week section is going to run a little bit long. So I'm going to try to keep this quick. So two little things. Uh, one, my son's little league coach noticed that there was something kind of weird about his swing. So we had him try a slightly longer, heavier bat and presto, his hitting instantly became much better. So, I mean, he's a naturally talented hitter anyway, but all those balls that used to sort of make it to the mound or just passed were suddenly just whizzing past second base and into the outfield. It's remarkable. Of course, that does mean we need to buy him a new bat, but boy, oh boy, is it worth it to see him doing well. The second thing, my partner just opened the show she directed at her high school this week, and it went incredibly well, which is, is for me, so gratifying. She is flat out the most brilliant and talented person I've ever met, so seeing her succeed is always at least as great as watching my son get a base hit. I guess, long story short, my family is awesome, over and out. Well, as I don't know if it's good or bad news, I suppose it depends on who you are. So quoting from an article here, quote, this year's World Cup will be the first since World Rugby changed their eligibility rules in 2021. That rule change has allowed test cap players to represent a second nation that they are eligible to play for if they, their parents, or their grandparents were born there, but only after a three-year stand-down period from test rugby. The move, while not restricted to Tier 2 nations, will certainly benefit nations who have seen eligible players opt out to play for bigger, more affluent countries. Specifically, the Pacific Islands have lost countless players over the years, and with a similar change in rugby league, resulting in Tonga reaching the semifinal and final in the last two World Cups. Woo. So as such, there are set to be a number of players in France, in particular this year, who have played test rugby for another country. So I'm not going to do the whole list. Um, if you follow the link in the show notes, you'll be able to see all of them that they came up with. But uh, here's just a few of them. Um, I think at the top of my own list would be Via Fafita. The game-breaking Scarlet Star previously won 11 caps for New Zealand between 2017 and 2019 before switching to the country of his birth, Tonga, last year. He featured in matches against Spain, Chile, Uruguay last November and will surely feature heavily in Pool B later this year. And then, oh man, I guess I, maybe I should have put him at the top of the list, Charles Piatau. The Japan-bound fullback was once the highest-paid player in England, having moved to Europe after missing out on a place in New Zealand's 2015 World Cup squad. The 31-year-old won 17 caps for the All Blacks, but has now pledged his allegiance to Tonga. He's won just one cap so far against Fiji last year, and will be hoping for a first World Cup appearance later on in the year. Of course, can't not mention Henry Thomas, the newly called up Wales tighthead, won seven caps for England nearly a decade ago, having won his first two caps on the uh, 2013 summer tour of Argentina. He then made appearances against Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Italy, and New Zealand the following year. However, England appearances dried up, but he qualifies for Wales through his father. Then we've also, of course, got 
Malachi Fekatoa, also likely to be seen in France this year, is World Cup winner Fekatoa, who won 25 caps for the All Blacks between 2014 and 2017 before moving to Europe, spending time at Toulon, Wasps, and Munster. Having served the mandatory stand-down period, Fekatoa changed allegiance to Tonga, the country of his birth. He initially represented them at an Olympic Sevens qualifier on 2020, in 2021 before uh, going to play Test 15s just last year. Of course, Stephen Luatua. The former All Black won 15 caps for New Zealand between 2013 and 2016, having been part of the under-20 side that won Junior World Championships in 2010 and 2011. Before that, though, he did also represent Samoa at grade age level, at age grade level, sorry, and uh, that's who he's set to resume his test career with. That was an awkward sentence. Uh, He was named in their autumn squad last year, only for Bristol Bears coach Pat Lamb to break the news that he was injured and wouldn't be available. That first cap for Samoa will surely come later this year. Jack Dempsey, the former Waratahs back row, won 14 caps for Australia between 2017 and 2019, making the last of his appearances in the pool stages of the last World Cup in Japan. Four years on, he'll be heading back into the showpiece tournament, playing for a different nation, having already won nine caps since switching to Scotland. He's part of uh, he's a part of Gregor Townsend's 42-man training squad <laughs> uh, and will be well-placed to make the final selection given his form for Glasgow. And of course... Paolo Odogwu. Oh, I love that guy. Technically, the Stade Francais back hasn't needed the uh, the eligibility rules to change to switch nations as the new Italy call-up hasn't uh, actually been capped by England. Instead, the former Wasp man was once called in to train when Eddie Jones was in charge, but crucially, didn't play a match, unquote. Some pretty great players on that list. And by the way, can't you just feel the rapid approach of this World Cup? Oh my word, I'm so geeked. So my thoughts of the week are actually with Zoe Harrison and a really interesting article that they put out featuring her. Um, The headline of the article was, people say you don't look like you play rugby. What does that mean? I thought that was, I mean, obviously they hooked me with that little (laughs) clickbaity almost uh, title, but it worked. Um, So quoting here, and of course, definitely follow the link for the entire article in the show notes. So as the women's game continues to professionalize, the need for players to pursue interests outside of rugby is becoming increasingly encouraged and necessary. One player who has an awareness of the fact that rugby doesn't last forever is England and Saracens fly half Zoe Harrison. After an ACL injury back in February, which in her words happened when she, quote, saw a gap, got way too excited, threw, an out, uh, threw out an outrageous step, and just hit the deck, unquote. Harrison has experienced firsthand why diversifying the CV can only be a good thing. Quote, I've always been aware of having something to fall back on. I went to Middlesex University and have a degree in sports rehabilitation and exercise. I'm always thinking, what can I do now and after rugby? I've done coaching in the past and have been going into schools, so perhaps it's being a PE teacher. I know that rugby will come to an end, and it'll come to an end faster than you think, unquote. So since March 2020, the 25-year-old has been an ambassador for the Mint Ridge Foundation, a charity which promotes positive mental health for young people and harnesses the power of sporting role models. Quote, my role at Mint Ridge is about going into primary schools and getting younger kids involved in playing touch, but mainly it's getting them to throw a ball about and actually hold rugby ball. We often play games that you'd usually do with another ball, but with a rugby ball instead to get them into rugby and aware of it. I like that. It's not all about netball and hockey or other sports usually encouraged for girls. I love coaching and spreading the game. I didn't play rugby at school, and in my senior school, I was the only girl who played rugby. It's just about giving children the opportunity to play the sport and have some fun. I love sports. I'm very sporty. I don't have a certain hobby, like I don't paint. I just love watching sport on the TV, especially football and cricket, as well as F1, unquote. 
in her mid-20s, there's still a lot of rugby left to be played for Harrison, with the, uh, with the number 10 keen to use her platform to change perceptions in the sport she loves. Quote, the main message I try and get across, and it's a big thing for me, is that you can be a girly girl and play rugby. I don't want young girls to be pushed out of sport because they don't look a certain way or don't see themselves as a tomboy. You can look any way you want and play any sport, whether that's a team sport or weightlifting in the gym. When I'm out and people find out I play rugby, rugby, they say, you don't look like you can play rugby. I know what they're hinting at, but I think, what does that mean? What are we meant to look like? Unquote. So with winning uh, England winning a Grand Slam in this year's Six Nations, ending with a world record crowd at Twickenham, Harrison was in the unfamiliar position of onlooker for the duration of the campaign. However, she maintains a positive outlook on her long-term recovery and return. Quote, because the, energy, uh, the injury happened before the Six Nations camps started, I wasn't in and around the squad, so it wasn't as bad. I'd just played in a World Cup, and since my first cap, I've been at every tournament. I'd rather have not done my ACL and be playing, but if I was going to do something this bad at any time, this probably would be the best time. I just try and get on with it because other people missed out on the World Cup and other players missed the Six Nations. Unquote. Uh, Harrison is still in the early stages of her return, coming up almost three months post-surgery. However, her ACL is not the only thing she is rehabbing. Using the time away from the pitch to correct a longer-standing shoulder injury, quote, as soon as I was over the pain of the ACL injury, I was in surgery with my shoulder. I was going to get it done at the end of the season, but then did my ACL, so this became the perfect time. This is my first long-term injury. I've never been out longer than three months. I feel like you're bound to get hit with one in your career, and this is my time to take the hit, unquote. So, my friends, I just thought this was a lovely article. It does go on quite a bit. And uh, as always, like I said, you'll find a link to the whole thing in the show notes. Really encourage you to check it out. Really great stuff. She seems like an amazing person. Well, 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 well. Time for our reviews, my friends. Clearly, we're going to start with the conclusion of this year's two European competitions with the Challenge Cup on Friday and the Champions Cup on Saturday, both at the Aviva. I checked ahead of time. I was kind of geeking out about this. I checked the weather ahead of time, and it said we were uh, in for cloudy but dry conditions both days. So I was really hoping for that. So starting with the Challenge Cup on Friday, it was Glasgow versus Toulon. And by the end, we would have a brand new champion in this competition. 17 teams have won the Challenge Cup in the past, but neither of these teams had gotten their hands on it. Glasgow had never gotten as far as the quarterfinals, while Toulon were in this exact position last year. Before the game, Glasgow Warriors back Stafford McDowell said, quote, We've got enough confidence from what we've done this season that we'll take anyone on at the moment. We've put in a lot of hard work and we feel that we're in a really good place going into the game. It's bubbling nicely. This is the first time the club have ever been to a European final, so it's new territory for us and one the players are really excited to get stuck into, unquote. Meanwhile, Toulon were getting uh, their record fifth crack at a Challenge Cup final and hoped to become one of the very few teams to have won it and the Heineken Cup, joining Bath, Northampton, Wasps, and Leinster. Uh, but they'd have to get past the competition's leading try scorer and Johnny Matthews, which is kind of a funny stat considering he got five of those seven tries in just one match. So I put out my usual poll. And I think it was 90% of you predicted Glasgow would win, though I suspect that's because I don't tweet in French. For me, uh, I mean, ahead of time, this looked 50-50 to me all the way. Maybe even 40-60 in favor of Toulon, but we'd have to see. So right at the top, I had my concerns. My, my first question was, where the heck is everybody? The cavernous stadium very sparsely filled out. And then next, I saw Glasgow were wearing their frankly crummy baby blue and weird sort of orangish red kits I, just not a fan of that look i think i've mentioned it a couple of times before meanwhile 
Toulon looked like death incarnate, and I was not encouraged. Worrying signs right off the bat for the French side, however, as Dan Bigger took a knock. It was hard to identify what happened, but he was taken off the field just around four minutes in, but... His side still appeared to have momentum. It was less than a minute later that Baptiste Serrain knifed through the, for the first try of the evening, and the sweat broke out on the back of my neck. After 10 minutes, it felt like Glasgow couldn't do a single thing right. The whistle blew over and over in favor of Toulon. Would the Warriors be able to rediscover that high-tempo attack they've been showing off until last weekend, frankly? Um, Toulon, they looked absolutely vicious at the breakdown, while Glasgow looked tentative and, frankly, scared. Um uh, there was a funny thing that, uh, happening with the French lineouts as well. It seemed like no throws were going directly to hand, but were all being tapped backwards towards them to sort of improvise. But, I mean, that was true when Glasgow disrupted it as well. Every bounce and roll of the ball just seemed to go toward Toulon. It was always them getting these loose balls. So speaking of lineouts, another that failed to go to hand, and Glasgow coughed it up for what felt like the hundredth time in just the first 20 minutes, Parise through for an arrogant try the great sergio they said 40 he's 40 they proclaimed and this one had the hallmarks of a beatdown. down was through again at the 26 minute mark for his personal second and up 21 to nothing at the half i realized i needed to break out the game over stamp um this one became a bit sad actually glasgow just impotent on attack on defense and every other way you can imagine just completely too long completely running away with it from top to bottom the warriors managing to find 19 points in the second 40 minutes but never anywhere near close too long in complete control the whole way winning their first ever challenge cup title an ecstatic sergio parise leading the celebrations as glasgow looked around unclear as to what had become of them over the last couple of weeks after a turgid tear in both competitions so a serious bummer for me, but a, a great win for the three-time Champion Cup winners. Toulon adding more silverware to the trophy case, thoroughly beating the upstart Warriors 19-43 to in a bit of a laugher. And then, oh my gosh, I'm still like shaking just even thinking about talking about it. Saturday brought us the Champions Cup final, the Heineken Cup up for grabs, Leinster facing off against La Rochelle for the second year in a row, hoping that being in Dublin might make the difference for them. The lead-up all week, uh, I'm sure you know, it was incredible. It looked to be one of the closest fixtures, fixtures of the year, on paper at least. La Rochelle had made the final for the third year running, while Leinster had won the Heineken Cup four of the seven times they'd made it this far, the last one being in 2018. The game itself, oh my word, what an occasion and an absolute dream opening for the de facto home team. A try 41 seconds into the contest. A shocking way to break the palpable tension. And as someone rooting for La Rochelle, I was sweating before a minute had gone by. La Rochelle, they looked stymied and uncertain. I honestly think that and another wham-bam opening try just kind of rattled them quite a bit. They seemed very, very lucky to get it all the way to 23-14 to 14 going into halftime. But the break... Seemed to settle things down a little bit. Hastoy calmly took the pen, uh, penalty to grab the first points of the second stanza. What a freaking match it was. So, Jameson Gibson Park was having a hell of a game. Leinster seemed so calm and assured. It was hard to see them letting go of the lead in this one. I was a quivering bundle of nerves as Hastoy kept the lead at six as we got around the 50-minute mark. Two odd calls by Jakob Piper in a row had me wringing my hands, but it felt like La Rochelle should have been getting a lot more mileage out of their malls. I just I wondered if that was the fulcrum where this match would ultimately lean towards the Irish hosts. 
James Lowe, who had had a sublime 50-22 earlier, gaffed one out on the full. The comms seemed to think that the momentum had shifted right then. I didn't feel that way to me, but case in point, Will Skelton went down and got some treatment for a long stretch, and the comms said, oh, he's given his pack a bit of a break. But to me, he had only given Leinster time to regroup and talk about what they were going to do and how they would close this one out. I I don't even remember when I last felt as utterly wrung out as I did as we made our way into the final quarter of the match, La Rochelle in possession and looking for seven to eke out a shocking win. Quote, Leinster are breathing heavy right now, unquote, said the comms. And yeah, I was with them. With 15 minutes left, Blow Rugby decided that we should watch the same Dodge Ram commercial four consecutive times. And no, I'm not kidding. What the actual F? Oh my God, with them. Anyway, I have to say, La Rochelle looked determined to lose, by which I mean, every time they had an advantage, they would lose it through an error. So rather than trying something, putting in a crossfield kick or whatever, they would just knock it forward and take the wind out of their own sails. Not good. So as the comms cried out for Yako to award a yellow for all the infringements Leinster kept making, La Rochelle finally forced one through. Hestoy's conversion gave them their first lead of the night. And the called-for card put Leinster down to 14 for the final seven minutes. Oh, my word. Then, I mean, if you were watching, you know what came next. A flying shoulder to the head knocked out a La Rochelle uh, Rochelle player. Just knocked him clean out instantly. Took no time at all, fortunately, for the officials to arrive at the decision to make it a red. I mean, it was no decision at all. It was the textbook definition. Uh, And it was 14 players against 13 with less than two minutes to go. La Rochelle ball. It was too excruciating to celebrate at that point, but I felt sure as a fan that I could be home free, maybe with just over a minute and the French side putting in a line out. I was literally out of my seat as they went for the longest throw of the night. How did they live on the edge like that? I I was mesmerized as they hauled it in. Yet another line-out. I mean, they must have nailed eight in a row. Saw La Rochelle getting a simple kick out to make it final. I was beyond words. 26-27 to was the final score in what instantly entered my top five all-time matches. Just insane how good it was. And uh, after the writing, a little update, little fact update. No, no, no. They hadn't made eight line-outs in a row. It was 15. They literally got it right every single time mind-blowing stuff and an incredible double-up win for La Rochelle. Okay, I've calmed down a little bit, so we're going to travel all the way down to the Southern Hemisphere. It was round 13 in Super Rugby Pacific. Things got kicked off this weekend with Moana Pacifica versus the Crusaders, with the hosts still looking for their first victory of the year. As you all know, my least favorite kind of match is a blowout, and that's very much what this was. Crusaders just being clinical and amassing a 29 to nothing lead by halftime. Quote, it's critical for Moana to get a good start and score early, unquote, the comms had said ahead of time. So, yeah, the nominal hosts eventually got on the board, but it was never close. Crusaders winning again 7-41 at Mount Smart. Then Reds versus Blues in the color clash of the weekend. That was the other Friday fixture. I imagine this one would also be a runaway. Blues did jump out on top, but Reds were methodical and clawed back to 14-17 to at the break. Would they get their second upset in a row? After just three quarters of an hour, Blues got back up by 10, but a scary sight. It was Bowden Barrett going down with what looked like an ankle injury. There was blood on his sock somehow, but later on they said he'd be all right, so definitely have to check back on that later. A last-second turnover by the home team that led to another Blues lightning strike added an exclamation mark to the scoreline, and at full time, it was 26-45 to for the visitors on Saturday. 
It was Highlanders versus Rebels. They mentioned in the lead-up that Shannon Frizzell would be starting at lock for just the second time in Super Rugby, this due to four actual locks being unavailable through injury. Yikes! So, both teams came in at 3-8. and eight. I was hoping the experience between uh, Aaron Smith and Freddie Burns at 10 would help my boys get a positive result. We got off to a tough start with Brad Gilbert clearly and obviously scoring a try, but the ref, nowhere near in a position to see it, went to the TMO with, quote, on-field decision is held up, unquote, and the TMO couldn't walk him back from that call, and the comms cried, that was a hopeless decision. Yeah, perfect way to put it. Soon after, as the Rebels knocked it on inside the five-meter line, the comms said, well, that's a minor victory for the Highlanders, and I almost shouted, those are the only ones we get this year. Yeah, start to this one definitely put me in a foul mood, I guess. Did I mention Blow Rugby have tripled the amount of ads that they shove down your throat indiscriminately during every single match now? Yeah, I was feeling particularly petulant until the comms said two of the players were, were having, quote, a real ding-dong battle, unquote, which made me laugh way too hard to stay pissed off. So things were tied as we approached the final quarter, uh, quarter of play. The fact is, we're just not good this year. I, I realize I can complain about bogus calls and all that, but if we can't even beat a three and eight Aussie team at home, the problem is not the officiating, you know? Anyway, Rebels, they went ahead by a penalty kick, but Highlanders tied it up again with maybe seven minutes left, and then a penalty against the Rebs with the cl- uh, with the clock well in the red set up Gilbert with a chance to be the hero. It was a perfect strike. The visitors visibly crushed. It was Highlanders sneaking one out just at the death, 20 to 17 in that one. Then Chiefs versus Hurricanes. Ooh, nice one on paper, at least. And the conditions for this one, though, were appalling. A torrential rain having battered the pitch all day. The wind, though, that it, it was next level. The comps predicted a very low-scoring affair. Undeterred, it was Samasoni Tukiaho smashing th- uh, down the first try of the night for the Chiefs before six minutes had even gone by, just his second on the season. I was very surprised to see that. It was 10-0 at halftime as the rain transitioned from crazy to utterly ridiculous. The Cowbells sporadically rang out as the home team built on their lead, but the impressive number of Hurricanes fans on hand were going crazy as they got back to 20-12, to but... Under 10 minutes remaining, it was hard to see them getting two quick scores. The goalposts swaying in the wind. It was Damien slotting yet another penalty to expand the lead to 11 late. And while it was never in doubt, somehow it was exciting anyway. Um, But things have definitely taken a downward turn from the Canes. They seem to be trending the wrong way while Crusaders and Blues, to some extent, are finding their grooves. It was tough. Julian Savia came in for a record-setting 151st appearance for the Hurricanes, besting TJ Perinara and one try away from taking over the all-time try-scoring record in Super Rugby. But he had a bit of a howler off the bench, just clumsily coughing it on, uh, coughing it up multiple times. So unlike him. It's uh, it's hard to imagine that nerves would get to him, but that's what it looked like from where I sat. In, a, in either event, it was 23-12. Uh, to 12. That was the convincing final score. Chiefs. They are back. So, Waratahs versus the uh, the Fiji and Drua was next. The Taz, they had found some form of late, so I anticipated a big win by them, but nigh on a half hour, it was a very close thing indeed. It was 8-6 to six in favor of the home side. Well past the 40-minute mark, though, it was Peach getting a namesake of a try to pad the lead going into the break, 13-6, to six, and then right around the 60-minute mark, the Andrua tr- tied it up. Suddenly, the pressure was on. Waratahs enjoyed a seven-point lead in the waning minutes, and we're pressing that advantage when we got some more, you know, creative officiating, we'll call it. Ben O'Keefe deciding that a late hit that amounted to a flying shoulder to the groin was just a charge down. 
And the comms screened, you don't charge down a kick with your shoulder. So Taz went on to put it away properly, continuing their role with a tough 32-18, to 18, their fourth in a row. Nice showing by them. And then finally, it was the Western Forest versus the Brumbies once again this weekend. My expectations were completely defied. Just a madcap weekend. In this case, the Force, they led 14 to nothing after just 17 minutes had gone by. Even at the break, the home team kept ahead to the tune of Russia's fourth album, and I wondered if they could keep it up for the full 80. Sure enough, I mean, what a weekend. Western Force grabbed another converted try and two penalty kicks and pretty well stuffed the visiting Brumbies, who admittedly had rested a few players again at full time. It was an incredible 34 to 19 big win in perf uh, perf perth really good showing for the force so swinging all the way back around the globe to north america for major league rugby on saturday we were back we were back baby we were back at fort quincy to witness yet another fantastic home performance as my beloved free jacks took on nola gold it was an absolutely gorgeous day out which was a nice change and we pretty well shattered our previous attendance record as well those of us lucky enough to be on hand got to witness a remarkable performance on both sides of the ball and we held the gold trialist on the day it was truly impressive as i've said one very cool thing that they do with these home games is they have some of the players who aren't in the 23 that day sort of wander around the stadium and they sit and watch the game one of them this week was Bodine Waka. Why do I bring him up? Because he has agreed to be the latest Free Jack to come on the Scrum of the Earth show. Uh, we're recording that Wednesday evening, so please keep your eyes peeled. That should be a ton of fun. He's actually an incredibly fun guy to talk to. In any event, this one was a bit of a runaway with no fewer than six players getting in for tries. Mitch Wilson and, and Paula Bellicana getting a brace apiece. I thought Slade McDowell, back from injury, had a phenomenal game, and we're really starting to show off the depth of this roster. Vian Conradi is continuing to rampage over anything foolish enough to get in his way, leading our team in ball carries as well as tackles made. How's that for a double stat? And Reese McDonald had another great showing, racking up 164 running meters to lead both teams by the final whistle. We'd hit the half-century mark, blowing out Nola 50-3 to in Quincy. What a day! So... Toronto versus DC was another draw. Can you even believe that? There have been two uh, two ties this year, and both of them involved the arrows, and that's two weeks on the bounce. But to be fair, they probably have to think that's a good thing, right? Anyway, this time it was 29 all at the end, and they now have more draws than wins on the season. Woof. So Atlanta versus Dallas was our next offering. Can you freaking believe it? It was my friend Harley Worthy's beloved Jackals grabbing their second victory of the, uh, of the year. Really good showing by them and a serious wake-up call for the sneaky sneak uh, <laughs> Rattlers. Uh, it was 19-27 to 27 by the end of that one. And then it was Utah versus Houston. The Warriors really showed us something, beating the struggling Thundercats 34-28 to 28 in Dr. Seuss land. And finally, to close out all proceedings for the weekend, Seattle versus Chicago went much the way one would think. Seawolves cruising to a comfortable 35-13 to win home at the Starfire. Well, by the music, you'll of course know it's time for this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award. And this week... The award goes to 
Gregory Aldrete. Monsieur Aldrete, you were a key figure in your side's instant classic in the Heineken Cup final, your performance earning you player of the match and the 2023 EPCR player of the year, making you just the second French player to earn that award. By the way, who was the first one? Ronan O'Gara. 2010. Uh, so your leadership and unreal energy, to me, made the difference this weekend. You have well earned this, the most prestigious award in all of the world of rugby. Gregory Aldrit, congratulations to you, for you are this week's Diamond in the Ruck. Well done, sir. Okay, that of course brings us to our updates and previews. As usual, I'm, I'm a little sad that the European Cups have wrapped up for another year, but I am keen to see how they tweak the format next year to make it a little less weird. So meanwhile, of course, we do have two finals coming this weekend in the URC and in the Prem. Side note, earning his second mention of the week, Harley Worthy reached out to mention out of the four remaining teams in these two competitions, three of them were beaten by Cardiff this year. So I, I don't know, I feel like Cardiff should get some sort of oddball trophy or something, Um Though they'd likely, you know, settle for being able to sign players. You know, that would be a nice thing in Wales right now. In any event, on Saturday morning, Saracens will face Sale at Twickenham. I think Saris might kind of run away with that one. And then at 1230 where I am, the Stormers will have their final, uh, their home final against a very impressive Munster team who, lest we forget, started the year one and three. And with that win being against Lowly Zebre. So while I'll definitely be rooting for the Stormers, I think Munster... They've been amazing, and it's my suspicion that they're going to win in Cape Town. Meanwhile, the top 14 put all their fixtures on the, uh, at the same times on Sunday with the 3 through 6 rankings still somewhat up in the air. We'll have Poe versus Montpellier. We'll have Toulon versus Bordeaux-Begle. We'll have Claremont versus Racing. Toulouse versus Brieve. Ooh, that's a tough one. Toulouse are already guaranteed a top two spot, and Brieve already know they're going to be relegated. That could be pretty grim. But then we'll have La Rochelle versus Stade Francais. Cast versus Perpignan, and finally Lyon versus Bayon. Down in Super Rugby Pacific, we're already on to the penultimate round. Man, oh man, this comp goes by fast. On Friday, we'll have Aaron Smith's final game as a Highlander at Forsyth Bar, facing off against the Reds. Rebels will be hosting the Western Force, and then another fantastic home fixture in Latoka, where the Indrua take on Moana Pacifica on Saturday. By the way, the uh, Moana Pacifica coach uh, either resigned or was forced out just to, uh, maybe today even as uh, i just heard about it but anyway saturday it'll be crusaders versus waratahs blues versus hurricanes and finally brumbies versus chiefs a fantastic way to close out the round back here at home in major league rugby my free jacks are back at home again on a short week this time to face a very pissed off toronto arrows team dc will host seattle houston are back at home for chicago Utah welcome the rebranded Rattlers from Atlanta. And finally, on Sunday, San Diego are back at the Snapdragon to hopefully annihilate the New York TVVCR repairman. Well, my friends, that does it for another week. <laughs> I have to admit, I am still buzzing about the Heineken Cup result. Just a staggeringly great contest. Absolutely one of the best I've ever seen. So apparently, there was a bit of a dust-up at halftime involving Johnny Sexton, among others. I'm keen to see if we ever find out what that was all about. I have a feeling it's just going to be, they're going to say, oh, we're, we're investigating for a week or two, and then just forget about it. Anyway, today has been frustratingly vague on that front. More as I hear it, naturally. So, as always... 
Thanks again for coming along to all of you across the globe. Cheers. Talk to you soon. And be well. <laughs>